This is the second day of this May 2021 two-day Yesterday, we read from the first chapter of Joanna Macy's book, World is Lover, World is Self, which focuses on the teaching of dependent co-arising, that no thing is apart from anything else. We're going to continue with Joanna Macy today, but instead we're going to turn to an interview with her that was published in another text titled Dharma Rain, Sources of Environmental Buddhism. Dharma Rain is a collection of writings that integrate Buddhist teachings with ecological awareness and practice, and it was edited by Stephanie Kaza and Kenneth Kraft uh, and published in 2000 by Shambhala Press. By the way, Ken Kraft was a longtime member of the center and Buddhist scholar. Uh, he passed away just a few years ago. And this particular co-edited book of his includes contributions from our very own Roshi Kolhid and Roshi Kapla. There's a lot of great material in Dharma Rain, including this interview with Macy, where she explains dependent co-arising as it relates to being and acting in the world. And she also gives insight uh, into how this teaching of the historical Buddha was so groundbreaking at the time, some 2,500 years ago, in contrast to what his contemporaries were teaching. The interview is, is quite long, so I'm going, only going to cover uh, excerpts from the conversation. And the names of the interviewers are Wes Nisker and Barbara Gates. They were affiliated with a no longer in print Buddhist journal called Inquiring Mind. And the interview was originally published in that journal. And I should also mention the title of the interview, The Third Turning of the Wheel, A Conversation with Joanna Macy. And there's actually a section of it where she explains three turnings of the wheel of the Dharma. Uh, she says that the, the metaphor of a wheel turning has been interpreted in, in different ways depending on the particular school of Buddhism. But the first turning of the wheel is generally understood as the Buddhist teaching after his awakening. And the, the imagery of a turning wheel is of course quite fitting because it symbolizes not just the interconnection of all things, like the spokes on a wheel, but also the endless cycle of rebirth 
that our, our true self is not static. It's in constant flux. The second turning of the wheel, she says, was the emergence of Mahayana Buddhism as expressed in the Prajna Paramita, the heart of perfect wisdom. This is a chant that we traditionally do at the center. I really miss doing it. <laughs> we haven't done it together since before the pandemic. Um, and, and, and the Prajna Paramita, um, it, it affirms that everything is empty, not just the self, but the Dharma, even the teachings of the Buddha. It also emphasizes the bodhisattvic vow of saving all beings. And as for the third turning of the wheel, Macy sees this in the context of the environmental crisis of our age. She says that the Buddhist teaching of dependent co-arising has new meaning and importance for us when we come to understand that everything we do, all of our actions, have an impact on others and on the well-being of our planet. So the interview begins with uh, asking her the following question. How has your meditation practice and your study of Buddhism been a basis for your action in the world? And she says, The real philosophical grounding of my work comes from the Buddha's central teaching of Patika Samuppada, or dependent co-arising, the understanding that everything is intrinsically interrelated. The Buddha said, he who sees the Dharma sees dependent co-arising, and he who sees dependent co-arising sees the Dharma. When I first encountered Buddhism, the teaching of causality was the farthest thing from my interest or inclination. But after I explored it a little, I began to see what the Buddha meant by dependent co-arising, and how radical and profound that insight really was. With it, with his turning of the wheel of the Dharma, he turned the thinking of his time on its head. And that teaching is central now to our enterprise of living and to our liberation. In Zen, it's true, realizing for ourselves, that nothing is separate or outside us, that everything is a part of everything else, is, is the heart of our work. It's about direct experience. Realizing that we're not just in the world, we're of it. But we, we don't need to wait until enlightenment to embrace and practice this teaching that no thing exists by itself. We can do it now. It's, it's, it's a radical and profound teaching, as Macy says, because our ordinary day-to-day -day experience of reality 
tells us the exact opposite. Our ordinary consciousness is in the realm of duality. Me and my, I'm this, you're that. And this, this sense of separation that we have enters into how we relate to or not the people and things around us, including the earth that we're standing on or sitting on. It's a matter of where our mind is in any given moment. Are we listening with full attention, for example, when others speak to us? Or are we lost in thoughts or judgments about ourselves or others? Are we careless with objects? Like when we, when we go to the grocery store, do we take the time to put the shopping cart away in the designated place or do we just leave it out in the parking lot Leave it for somebody else to deal with or for the wind to blow away and maybe damage a car. When we go for a walk and we notice litter on the sidewalk, do we pick it up? Or do we just walk by it? Maybe we curse the person who left it there? Or just pick it up and throw it away. And here's another. Do we, do we pay attention to our consumption habits? Like how much water uh, we can waste if we're letting the faucet run too long? Or wasting food by not eating everything that's on our plate? In Zen training, we learn how to use mindfulness to avoid waste. And in turn, we're learning how to integrate our practice into everything we're doing. Really, e each moment gives us the opportunity to merge with our practice and with everything and everyone and the planet. But we don't, we don't stand a chance if we're not paying attention. When we practice with sincerity, we're acting less out of self-interest and more out of serving, serving the needs of others and the world we live in. You can say it's an expression of our love as Macy says, seeing the world as our lover. Macy continues by talking about another fundamental teaching of the Buddha. She says, let me go back and start with the Buddha's idea of change, anika. That also turned the thought of his age inside out. 
By the way, another um, translation for anaka in Zen is impermanence. Okay, she goes on to say, the philosophical thinking of the Indian subcontinent at the Buddhist time was similar to what was happening in Greece. I think it might be related to the patriarchal caste of mind. The mindset equated reality with the changeless. What is really real does not change. What is really real does not change. So here she's referring to our conditioned way of relating to the world where there's this impulse to define, delimit, impose order, seeing reality or truth as something that is outside of us. It's fixed and it's outside of us. A good example of this is um, how we talk about nature, our relationship to nature. Nature is seen, uh, it's gendered as uh, feminine, as female, as in the term mother nature, which is wild and uncontrollable. And it's, it's treated as a separate place from that which is quote-unquote man-made, which is seen as a product of engineering, the rational mind, that which is regulated. And this, how we talk about nature this way shows how we humans see ourselves as not part of it at all. And it also, it's connected to our stereotypical ideas about femininity and masculinity. And I think that's what Macy is getting at when she refers to it as tied to a, a, a patriarchal mindset. But it is interesting to see that in our, our dominant culture, our, our relationship with nature is, is one of control. We, we like the idea of nature as in a, you know, a beautiful place to visit, but when it comes to actually being in it, uh, then we want to be in control. We want to experience it on our own terms, not, not as a wild, uncontrollable force. Living, living here in a Western New York, located you know halfway between Rochester and Buffalo, there are all these housing developments you can see that are found on the outskirts of towns and city centers. And more often than not, it's a bunch of streets where the houses kind of all look the same and there's not a, a tree standing. And yet the name of the development might be something like Whispering Pines, right, or Oakwood Acres. And on top of that, you see all the 
nature-inspired lawn art. Deer statues are especially popular around here. You know, and it's kind of silly, but like a deer statue is a kind of controlled, simulated version of nature. We want the statue, but not the actual deer that will chomp on our flowers in the garden. And another example of how we try to impose order on nature is in our attempts to control time or define time as if it's a thing that exists out there. We divide it up into morning, afternoon, and evening, 24 hours in a day. We have clocks that we use to keep track of it. Um, time periods broken up to week, into weeks, you know, months, years, seasons, spring, summer, fall, and winter. And we talk about spending time and how much of it we have. But, you know, in the absolute sense, tracking time amounts to just a bunch of thoughts. Time, time doesn't exist outside of our perception of it. Our, our, our thinking mind tells us there's some kind of like linear movement, this constant progression that's happening. But that's our thinking mind. And we can get really attached to it. Uh, in Sashin, for one, this becomes a, a very big obstacle for us. We get, get caught up in thinking about how far we're into the round of sitting, shouting expletives in our head at the timer. Sorry, Ed. Or on the last day of Sashin, thinking about when it will end, what you're going to do after it ends. Another way we get attached to time in practice is uh, thinking back about past Sashins and how this Sashin's going to go and the next one. But there's no linearity to it. There's no progression. There's no time. There's just this. When we gain some experience in sitting, though, and we, and we allow ourselves to go deeper into our practice, and the way we do that is to keep our attention on it. Time then disappears. We're no longer tracking the round of sitting, but tracking the koan, tracking our breath. We might even find that our practice has such a hold on us, we can't let go of it. We forget about time, and when that happens, one moment the round begins, the next minute it's, it's ending. It's over. Wow. 
What happened? Where'd the time go? Macy continues um, in talking about this cultural tendency to see truth as, as something that's fixed, as a thing out there. So here, here's what she says. Now, you can't prove that what is real does not change one way or the other. But once you make that axiomatic move, it affects everything else. What it, leads, what it leads you to is a rejection of empirical experience. Since everything I experience by my senses is changing, my face in the mirror gets another wrinkle every day, and the weather changes, and my hopes change, then this world of my experience is less real. If you've made the supposition that what is real is unchanging, as Plato also did, then this world, this changing dimension, becomes illusory in some way. Then the spiritual journey, the project of liberation, is try to is to try to get to the ultimate, unchanging, disembodied reality. We move away from the phenomenal world, seeing it as less real and less valuable. A split is created. A split between self and other. rejecting experience. What Macy is saying here is that our ordinary consciousness is in the realm of appearances. We're conditioned to believe that what is real is out there, disembodied from us, not part of our experience, when in fact we're it. We are nature. And we are time. And as for time, occasionally our bodies remind us <laughs> that we are time. We wake up one morning and we disco discover something new is failing. There's a, a troubling symptom, a new ache or pain. But actually, our bodies are failing in every moment, even though we don't notice it all the time. Cells are dying, but also new cells are replacing them. It's an ongoing process of birth and death with no beginning or end. Yet our thinking mind deceives us. Our thinking mind tells us that to know the world is to name and define it. This is this, that is that.
you know, we can we can um, pick up a, a cup and see that it has a distinct shape and form. We can hold it in our hand. We see it as a thing that is separate and, and, and static. It doesn't appear to be moving, at least not that we can see. At the same time, there, there's nothing wrong that we have names for things. We need to name things. It's, it's how we communicate with one another. The problem lies, though, in getting attached to things and the labels that we give them as if they are fixed and permanent. When, in fact, everything and everyone is in constant motion, including us. And this is confirmed not just by Zen, but by practice, but by uh, science. Quantum physicists have confirmed that the physical world, as we perceive it, isn't physical at all. Everything is pure energy. Everything's shimmering, including a cup. And then biologists have discovered that we're only roughly half human. Human cells make up about 43% of the body. The rest of us is microbes. So nearly every nook and cranny of our bodies is covered with, with these microscopic creatures that live off of us. And yet we think of ourselves as, as separate and singular. And when our body is declared clinically dead, what happens with all those microbes? They live on. In fact, they're, they're just waiting for us to die so they can feast off of us. We are their food. So when we die, we're actually teeming with life. I came across this really great quote from Albert Einstein. He said, Reality is merely an illusion, although a very persistent one. Yeah, our, our thoughts are persistent in their ability to deceive us. But we've got this practice to help us get out of our heads and into the direct experience of being. Macy continues by describing how the historical Buddha, Gotama, in his journey toward awakening, 
experimented with ascetic practices, which were also practiced by his contemporaries. And asceticism involves denying the self, mortifying the physical body, you know, go, going without eating or drinking, refraining from things, from sensual pleasures, going without sleep. And Macy says that the whole idea behind asceticism was to go beyond the world of change and appearances. Again, this was based on the assumption that what we're looking for is outside of us and that there's some fixed or permanent realm that we can get to. In, in reading about asceticism, it reminded me of uh, in Sashin years ago, before I really got my, my bearings in practice, I, I used to try to um, deny myself uh, of things, although certainly not to the extent of asceticism. At the time, there weren't many Sashins I could go to because of, of work limitations. I could maybe go to like two a year. And so whenever I did Sashin, I kind of had this samurai attitude, you know, it's all or nothing. And, you know, I really try to push myself to go with very little sleep, uh, very little food. You know, maybe I'd have one or two prunes for breakfast, you know, a little bit of plain rice. Uh, for dinner, you know, and on the one hand, as Roshi has advised us, experimenting like this can be really helpful in terms of breaking out of our, our habits. But if we're doing it to get something in return, like I was, then in actuality, we're still stuck in those habit forces. It took me a while to learn about the middle way and not, not trying to be in control, not trying to control my conditions. When tired, sleep. When hungry, eat. It's not complicated. Doing what feels natural. There's no formula to follow. What matters is where our attention is. I'm getting back to the interview. Macy uh, then responds to a question about how this prevailing view that rejected the world of change as seen in asceticism, how it filters into our culture uh, as well. And here she says, when you equate the real and the valuable with the changeless, in other words, with some fixed or permanent reality, you get the same mind matter split. You also get the disastrous split between humans and the rest of nature. Now what the Buddha did 
was to slip right out of that dichotomy. He said, what is real is change itself. Sabe Anika. Everything is without a permanent, changeless self, including you. You are not separable from your experience. This insight arises in Vipassana practice and it just blows your mind. By the way, Vipassana meditation is, is part of the Theravada tradition, which Macy practices in. And I don't know much about it beyond what I've read, um, which is that it emphasizes mindfulness of, of feelings, mind states, the senses, bodily sensations as they come and go. And mindfulness is a dimension of Zen practice as well, but Zen practice also involves concentration. So blend of mindfulness and concentration. So on the one hand, we're doing Zazen and we're cultivating this awareness of the, the present moment. We hear the sound of birds. But at the same time, we're not inquiring into what we're hearing. We're, we're directing our t attention to our koan, or our breath practice, or shikandaza. And, and in any case, this is what Macy says about mindfulness practice. You're watching and watching these dharmas, or psychophysical events, come up. And it begins to dawn on you that among the things that are coming up on the screen, you never see a little sandwich board saying, I. It dawns on you that there's no experience of self separate from the experience of everything else. We can experience this, especially when we have the opportunity to do zazen intensively, as we do in sashin, the mind settles and, and we can see how mind states come and go. Things pass. We see that things are just happening. They're not happening to us, though just happening. We get ourselves, the I and the me, out of the way. And as, as mind states come and go, we can find that one moment we're feeling tired and the next moment we're feeling energized. But there's no one there. There's no one there turning a switch on and off. That's the power of Zazen. And Zazen can feel really effortless when we give up trying to be in control. Whenever we're, we're, in, whenever we're trying to control the conditions we're in, 
we're just getting bogged down in thoughts. We're making the condition into a thing. So if we're tired, you know, we say, ah, oh, I feel so tired. And then we latch onto it, we're labeling it, we play out the drama. I had such a crappy sleep last night. I don't know how I'm going to make it through this round. Of course, we're we're not paying to our we're not paying attention to our praxis at that point. And uh, this can especially be challenging when it comes to pleasant sensations. You know, getting attached to moments when our thoughts have settled, uh, feeling lightness, buoyancy. And if we judge those sensations that we're experiencing, rather than let them pass like we would any other thing, because they will pass sooner or later, but if we, if we start latching onto it with thoughts and judgments, we, we lose the intimacy with our practice. There was a one sashin where during a break period, I went outside for a walk. Um, I think it was, it was in autumn and there were lots of dry leaves on the ground. And as I was walking, I was just, just overtaken with emotion. But just the sound of the leaves crunching under my foot. So much so that I just got, got you know, dro really just dropped my practice and got car carried away with the beauty of the crunch, crunch with each step. And then I spent the, the next block of sitting thinking about the leaves and how beautiful they were and thinking that was such an exhilarating feeling and totally unaware of the fact that I was lost in thoughts. And underneath that, I was grasping. I wanted to get back to that feeling. Trying to get back to it or keep it alive. Instead of just letting it pass. Being the practice means that when we're tired, we're just tired, not fighting it or judging it. There's no reason we can't continue to work on our practice while we're feeling tired or in any other passing state. So when we're feeling grumpy, what is moon? What is this? When we're happy, what is Mu? What is this? What is the breath that we're working, or whatever practice we're working on? It's a, it's a real, real test of our faith and effort to keep our attention there, no matter the conditions we're experiencing in a given moment. Macy uh, goes on to unpack the Buddha's teaching. 
she says, so the Buddha said that change is what is real. But he also said that there's order in that change. There's order in that change. Now this is an amazing move because the previous mindset, which would have been that of you know the Greeks, Plato, is to assume that order requires stability, that order requires permanence or freezing something into place. So there we go. You know, it, there we go. It comes down to control again. Our desire to have things just so, freezing it into place. Wanting things to be postcard image perfect. She continues. The, the, uh, and then she's continuing on this point about assuming that order requires stability. The Buddha turned that inside out too. He said that the order is in the change. And that is the meaning of dependent co-arising. This being so, that is. When this arises, that arises. If this does not arise, that does not arise. So the change is not chaotic. He made the radical assertion that the change is orderly, that order is intrinsic to change. What that also says is that there's not some mind up there, some big daddy mind, that is making this happen and making that happen, imposing order on the otherwise random events, orderliness is simply how things work. That is the very meaning of the word dharma. It means that's how things are ordered. Or as we hear Roshi say, things just as they are. The sun sets, the wind blows, a goose lands on the pond. When the, when the moon is full and the ocean temperature is just right, coral reefs in a given area release their eggs and sperm and multiply in a mass synchronized event. But if the sky is cloudy and the full moon is obscured, or if the ocean temperature isn't just right, if it isn't around 80 degrees, it's not going to happen. Maybe the conditions will be right the next full moon. Maybe not. And here's another. There's this popular saying, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. One can't exist without the other. The same goes for Sangha. Would we have a Sangha without a teacher? 
Imagine all the things that would have to happen in order for our center and our Sangha to come into existence. Would we be sitting here right this moment if Roshi Kaplow hadn't been a court reporter in the Tokyo war crimes trials? But we don't need to waste time, you know, analyzing any of this or trying to identify particular causes and effects. We just need to take heart in our practice and in the Dharma that the world as we experience it is being created anew each moment. Everything exists in relation to other things and it's changing from one moment to the next. There's a classic Chinese parable about a farmer. It's a story, it's a story that Roshi has shared before, and I'm, I'm going to share it as well because it, it really captures uh, this point about how things are order, ordered. Things just as they are. It goes like this. A farmer and his son had a beloved stallion who helped the family earn a living. One day, the horse ran away, and their neighbors exclaimed, Your horse ran away. What terrible luck! The farmer replied, Maybe so, maybe not. A few days later, the horse returned home, leading a few wild mares back to the farm as well. The neighbors shouted out, your horse has returned and brought several horses home with him. What great luck! The farmer replied, Maybe so, maybe not. Later that week, the farmer's son was trying to break one of the mares, and she threw him to the ground, breaking his leg. The villagers cried, Your son broke his leg. What terrible luck! The farmer replied, Maybe so, maybe not. A few weeks later, soldiers from the National Army marched through town, recruiting all the able-bodied boys for the army. They did not take the farmer's son, who was still recovering from his injury. Friends shouted, Your boy is spared. What tremendous luck! To which the farmer replied, Maybe so, maybe not. So, you know, the moral of the story is that no event in and of itself can truly be judged one way or another. We just don't know. And the farmer seemed to have some understanding of this. And in contrast to that, I was reminded of a, a saying that I saw on a t-shirt recently. I was in a doctor's office this was about a week ago. I was in the waiting area, and there was a woman with a t-shirt on. And it was a graphic t-shirt, and on, on the front of it, it said, Well, that didn't go as planned. Story of my life. We should get her a new shirt that says, Things are just as they are. The wheel just keeps turning.
when we go beyond duality and we merge with the conditions we're in, we see things as they are. As the uh, interview goes on, Macy wraps up by responding to a question about this third turning of the wheel of of the Dharma, which I'd mentioned earlier. She says, It is the old teaching and also new again. At the same time, we can imagine ourselves released from the squirrel cage of ego, released from the terrible trips we play on and lay on ourselves, released from our own addictions and from the behavior that devastates the world. For centuries, we have focused on the fetters and suffering that we seek release from. Now, with this third turning of the wheel, our eyes are turning to what we're being released into. We're released into interbeing, into the dance of the holographic universe, where the part contains the whole. We suddenly find that we live and act on behalf of all beings and by virtue of all beings. We'll stop here and recite the four vows.